Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 for our time in God's Word this morning. We're doing a verse by verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 17, verse 20. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 20 through 26. And the title of the message this morning is The Heart of Jesus Laid Bare. The Heart of Jesus Laid Bare. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I flew to Indianapolis to spend a week with my mom and my dad uh, who lived there with my dad's health declining from a variety of uh, issues, I went on this trip mindful of the fact that this might be uh, my last time seeing my dad on this earth. And we had a bittersweet time with my mom and my dad during our seven days together. And Donna and I uh, deeply cherished the privilege of being able to serve them uh, in various ways. When the time came for us to leave, my dad... Uh, was weak, but he insisted on standing to see us off. Before we left their house to head to the airport, I asked my dad if he would pray for Donna and for me. So with his left hand holding my mom's hand and with his right arm holding me as I held on to Donna, my dad prayed for us. And wanting to hold on to that moment forever, I recorded his prayer on my phone. There's something about being prayed for in such a moment by someone who has influenced your life for the Lord more than any other. The heart of the person praying in such a moment is often more open and more vulnerable And the ears of those who are listening in such a moment are more attentive, for sure. I know that I clung to the words of my dad's prayer more than I ever have in listening to him pray. And I share all this to say that it is in John chapter 17 where we see Jesus and his disciples in just such a moment as Jesus prays for them before they are separated. I mentioned a few weeks ago that some writers refer to John 17 as the inner sanctum of the heart of Christ. And I believe that is true, and I believe it is especially true of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. In the Greek text of verses 20 through 26, we actually find five purpose statements. And then in the middle of those purpose statements, we find Jesus saying in verse 24, I desire. We find three of these purpose statements in the Greek text of verse 26 alone, where Jesus literally says, or I'm sorry, in verse 21 alone, where Jesus literally says, so that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. The final verse of this prayer, verse 26, ends with another so that purpose statement where Jesus says, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So I think we can say that in these verses, the heart of Jesus is laid bare as he unveils his desire and his deepest motivations with regard to his disciples. And the disciples get treated to this unveiling of his heart in the moments before he is arrested and taken away from them. A couple weeks ago, we studied verses 11 through 19, where Jesus uttered three petitions for his disciples. He petitioned the Father to keep them in his and the Father's name so that they might be one. Number two, he petitioned the Father to keep them from the evil one or from the evil of this world. And number three, he petitioned the Father to sanctify them in the truth just as Jesus sanctifies himself for the final great task of his earthly mission, which is to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, as we listen in on Jesus' prayer up to verse 19, we might get the impression that Jesus is praying only for the 11 disciples who are with him in this moment But it is in our passage today that wonderfully Jesus opens the curtain of his heart a little wider and reveals that he has many more people in mind as he has been praying for his disciples. And that greater number of people that he had in mind includes you if you are a believer in Jesus And so the way we're going to break down our study of verses 20 to 26 this morning is we'll observe three deep desires, three deep desires of Jesus for all of us who believe in him. The first of these desires is going to take up the greatest amount of time, and then the second and the third will be able to go through Uh, a little bit more quickly, but the first desire, the first deep desire that Jesus expresses here in these verses is, you can fill in the blank if you have the notes with you, that the Father would make us one like he and the Father are one. This is his desire for all who believe in him, all of us who believe, that the Father would make us one like he and the Father are are one. Observe what he says in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these, in other words, these 11 alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And let's stop here for just a few minutes. When Jesus says what he says here, he isn't just saying that from this point forward, he's going to start asking 
on behalf of all those who will believe in him through the disciples' word. Instead, in saying what he says here in verse 20, Jesus is revealing the fact that even in his prior request for his 11 disciples, he has been praying for the benefit of all those who will come to faith in him. Look at the text, through their word, meaning through the message that they proclaim about Jesus and everything Jesus has been saying in this prayer. He has all those who believe in him through the word of the disciples in his heart. Notice how Jesus calls the disciples' message their word. Yes, it is the word of the Father. Yes, it is the word of Jesus, but it will be their word also. This word has been given to them by Jesus, and they are now to own his word as their own and then make it known to the world. In the same way, we are to take the truth of Christ and to make it our truth, right? We are to take his message and make it our message as we walk in it and declare it to the world. When Jesus speaks of those who will believe in him through the word of his disciples, as he says here in verse 20, uh, we should note that he's displaying incredible confidence in his disciples and in the Lord's work in his disciples. He's encouraging them as they hear this with the news that they will go forward from their failure on this very night and they will stand before others and they will speak God's word to the world and people will hear them and come to believe in Jesus through their word and be saved. This is a confident Jesus standing in the shadow of the cross who is very much assured of the success of of his word and of the success of the mission that he is bestowing upon the disciples here. And his words here would remind his disciples that in the days to come, that the whole thrust of their ministry will be to point people to Jesus and to call them to believe in Jesus. And this is to be the goal of our ministry Also, right? Jesus' words here also remind us that the only legitimate way for a person to come to believe in him is through the word of his disciples or apostles whom he sent. There is no other savior and there is no other way to be saved other than through the true Jesus that the disciples of Jesus proclaimed to the world. In verse 20, Jesus says to his father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And Jesus has an underlying motivation for asking all that he has been asking of the father. And he states that motivation in verse 21, where he says that they may all be what? One. 
So Jesus prays that his disciples and all of us who believe in Jesus through their word will be one, which in itself points us to the core reality at the center of that oneness. And that is faith in Jesus through the word of his apostles. All true Christians have these two things in common. We have believed in the same Lord Jesus and we have believed in Jesus through the same word of his disciples or apostles, which means that the oneness that Jesus is desiring here is a oneness that will span the centuries and include the unity of all Christians of every age with Jesus' original apostles. As John Stott says in his commentary on this passage, what Jesus prays here is first and foremost a prayer that there would be a historical continuity between the church of the first century and the church of subsequent centuries, that the church's faith would not change but remain recognizably the same, that the church of every age would remain loyal to the teaching of the apostles. I agree with that. Nowadays, we have church leaders and churches that are all about reimagining Christianity and what Christianity should be. They think that the church should evolve with the world and keep up with the times. And when you hear such leaders teach and read the liturgies that they write, what you observe is that they are very much one, very much unified, but their unity is with the world, not with the apostles of Jesus Christ. For they are believing in a Jesus of the world's making, and they're listening to a different word than the word of Jesus' apostles. But here in verse 21, Jesus prays that Christians of every age would be one with Jesus' original disciples by giving heed to their word, which the Father has sanctified them to deliver to us. Jesus is saying all this, and he's saying much more. Again, in verse 21, Jesus expresses his desire, look at the text, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So whatever this oneness is that Jesus is desiring for us, it's thankfully not a oneness that we have to try to create or generate somehow. Instead, it is a unity that is already fundamentally true about us because of our new location, as Jesus calls it, in us, which means in the Father and Son. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, he says here in this verse that the Father is in or with him and that he himself, Jesus, is in or with the Father. In more vivid language, John tells us in John 1, 18, that Jesus is currently where? 
in the bosom of the father. In other words, in the father's embrace. So in the mind of Jesus, for believers in him to be in us means that we are welcomed into the relationship that is enjoyed by the father and son with one another. And we can say it this way, that we are actually brought into and sandwiched inside their embrace of one another. Just like children are welcomed into the relationship of a husband and wife, so we who are saved are welcomed into the warmth of the relationship of God the Father and God the Son with one another. And we're brought into the warmth of their embrace of one another. Isn't that amazing? My wife and I have four uh, grown children And when our kids were growing up in our home, there were many times where Donna and I would uh, be hugging each other. And one of our kids would see us hugging each other and they would stop whatever they were doing and come over and squeeze in between us and get inside that hug. And I'm sure many of you parents have experienced the same thing. And whenever our kids would do that, I don't ever recall feeling like they were trying to get in between us or to push us apart. Instead, it seemed that they saw love between us and they wanted to be in the middle of that love. After all, who wouldn't want to be where love is, right? And I share that to say this, when, when we believe in Jesus Christ through the word of his apostles, God puts us right in the middle of the embrace between the father and the son. And this divine embrace becomes our new address forever. And being inside that embrace, we look around And we see a bunch of other brothers and sisters wrapped in that same embrace. And we all got brought into that embrace when God enabled us to believe in Jesus through the word of his apostles. This mutual placement of ourselves inside the divine embrace becomes the foundation of our unity with one another. Speaking of our kids, uh, when they were little and my wife and I would find them fighting or arguing with one another in an intractable way that wasn't getting solved with a scolding here and there, one of the ways we would deal with that is that we would set a timer and we would make our children hug each other for a full 60 seconds or more. And I'm not talking about some lame one-armed side hug that they had to do. We required a full-bodied embrace with both arms that they had to hold until the time was up. I don't recall a time when we ever did that that they weren't smiling and reconciled by the end of the allotted time for the embrace. 
The hug would always start off reluctantly with each of them mad and frowning. But by the end of the 60 seconds or however long it was, they usually had a smile on their face. They were reconciled and they were laughing. Why is that? Well, because it's kind of hard to be at odds with someone when you are wrapped in a full-bodied embrace with them. And I share this to say that you and I who know Jesus are wrapped inside of a better embrace than that. We are all being embraced together by the Father and the Son in their embrace. And it's hard to be at odds with someone when you are mindful that you are both situated inside the same embrace of God the Father and God the Son, and when you're mindful of what an amazing grace that is, that God would welcome you into that embrace. So thus far, we see three reasons we who believe in Jesus are one. First, because we have believed in the same Jesus. Second, because we have believed in Jesus through the same word of the apostles, and third, because we are located inside the same embrace, the embrace shared between the Father and the Son. This is what theologians call our mystical union or positional union that persists even through our disagreements and our arguments with one another, and even through our theological differences that we might have with one another. This is a unity that the Calvinist George Whitfield had with the Arminian John Wesley, a unity that the dispensationalist John MacArthur had with the covenantal R.C. Sproul, a unity that cessationist Christians share with their charismatic brethren, a unity that every true believer in any orthodox denomination has with every other true believer in another orthodox denomination. It is a unity that we have with one another, whether we are getting along in a particular moment or not. Our practical unity may not be perfect, but our mystical union always is. And that mystical union will one day result in a practical unity that we will perfectly enjoy in heaven with Christ when the prayer of Jesus is fully answered. That said, Jesus wants this mystical union that we all share to impact us even now and the way that we relate to one another. For he says in verse 21, and I want you to pay attention to the end of this verse. He says to his father that they may all be one, even as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Evidently, Jesus intends for our mystical union with the Father and Son and with one another to impact us and the way we relate to one another to such a degree that our practical unity with one another is observable and serves to persuade 
the world that Jesus was truly sent by the Father. This is the kind of unity that Jesus prays for all of us who believe in him. And it's what he labored to bring about when he was on the earth seeking to lay the foundation for this unity. Observe what Jesus says in verse 22, speaking to his father. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. The quintessential glory that the father has given to Jesus is relationship with himself. Along with all the perfections and beauties of the father's own character, which he eternally begets in Jesus. The centerpiece of the glory that the father has given to Jesus is that he eternally loves Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is saying here in verse 22 that he has taken that glory that the Father has given to him and he has given that glory to his disciples, welcoming them into his love relationship that he enjoys with his Father. And according to verse 22, Jesus imparted this very glory to his disciples with a goal in mind, a purpose in mind, and that is that they may be one just as we are. Jesus' language here shows us that the unity we experience with one another is not the product of our own creation or even effort. Our unity with one another is a byproduct of us being ushered by God into the glorious love relationship between the Father and the Son to the point where our unity with one another begins to bear the imprint of that amazing relationship. Jesus unpacks the components of this unity of his disciples that he desires in verse 23, when he says, look at what he says in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So if it is true, as Jesus says here, that Jesus is in us, And if it is true that the Father is in him who inhabits us, then that means that both the Father and the Son are in us. And we know that this indwelling of the Father and the Son in us happens through the Holy Spirit, based on what Jesus has taught us in chapter 16. This is now, we could say, the fourth reason that we who believe in Jesus are one, and that is that we have the same Father and Son inhabiting us through the Spirit. But look carefully at Jesus' language here in verse 23. When he expresses his desire that we would be perfected in unity, he's praying definitely that our practical experience of unity with one another would reach its completion or its maximum maturity, its intended end, 
But he is saying more than that also. He is also saying that he wants each of us as individuals to reach spiritual maturity in the context of this unity. In other words, inside the matrix of the unity that we experience with the Father and the Son and with one another. And this means, if I could try to put this a little more simply, that if you as an individual are interested in personally reaching spiritual maturity, then don't be a lone ranger. You will want to believe in Jesus through the word of his apostles, and you will want to reside inside the embrace that the Father and the Son share with one another, and you will want to learn to walk in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught up in that same embrace, for it is only in the context of that unity that any of us can grow to spiritual maturity. And look at the text of verse 23. Jesus is speaking to his father and expressing that he wants us to experience this growing maturity in the context of unity. Uh, Look at what he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This is yet another indication that Jesus wants our unity with God and with one another to be visible to the world such that it would bring the people of the world to these conclusions, two conclusions. Number one, that the father truly sent Jesus. And number two, that the father loved Jesus' disciples even as he loves Jesus. Jesus intends for our oneness with one another to serve as a powerful apologetic that persuades the people of this world of these two things that Jesus identifies here in verse 23. Which means, guys, that the very best gift that you and I can give to the world is to walk in unity with the triune God and with one another. And then from that place of maturing unity, we declare the gospel of Christ to the world. For Jesus says that our unity will help to bring the people of this world to the knowledge that the Father truly sent Jesus and that the Father loves us even as he loves his Son. And by the way, it's so worth taking a moment to appreciate Jesus' language here in verse 23 when he speaks to his father and says, you've loved them even as, you can underline those words, even as you have loved me. D.A. Carson describes these words as breathtakingly extravagant because they teach us that the father loves us just as much as he loves his son. Go figure. This is a crazy thought, but you know what? It shouldn't surprise us. John 3.16 teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave what? Whom? His only begotten son for our salvation. 
How can God not love us as much as he loves his son when he gave his son to die for us? And now that we have his son inhabiting us and having his son's righteousness adorning us, of course God loves us as much as he loves his son, as amazing as that truth is. Such ones whom God loves in this way, he loves with an infinite love that is as boundless as it is eternal. And this brings us to the second desire of Jesus for all of us who believe in him. And let's word it this way. His second desire is that we will one day be with him and see his glory, that we will one day be with him and see his glory. Observe what Jesus says to his father in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Notice those words, I desire. Jesus is bearing his heart to his father in front of all of us divulging the deep longing of his heart and his longing amazingly is that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Notice how Jesus speaks once again about how the father has given to him all those who believe in him, which is now the fifth time in this very prayer that Jesus has stated this fact. We see it in verse 2 twice in verse 6 and in verse 9, and once again here. You and I, who are believers in Jesus, are gifts from the Father to Jesus, just as Jesus is God's unspeakable gift to us. And Jesus' desire for us, who have been given to him, is, look at the text. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me Be with me where I am. If you're taking notes, you can uh, mark the word with, and it's the Greek word meta. Meta. M-E-T-A. Meta. Jesus is about to go to the cross and then to the tomb and then ascend to his father in heaven after his resurrection, and he's expressing his desire that his disciples and we would one day be with him in heaven. Now, one would not have blamed Jesus if in this moment he said to his father, Father, please take me to heaven and get me away from these people. We would understand that. We'd be thankful for the few years that he was with us on earth. But Jesus doesn't ask that. Instead, he wants his disciples and he wants us to be with him where he is in heaven. And part of what this means, guys, is that Jesus, he must really love us. He must actually like us. And he must like what he's making of us. So much so that he wants us with him for eternity in his father's house. And he's voicing this desire to his father here, which means 
you know, as Jesus is praying, he gives voice to this desire. And what that means is that when you and I get to heaven, our arrival there will not just be the ultimate answer to our prayers. It will be an answer to his prayer as well. And the greatest blessing of heaven is that we will get to be with Jesus. Back in 2021, Facebook renamed their company Meta, M-E-T-A, which is this very Greek preposition that Jesus uses here. And Meta would tell you that they are all about helping people to connect and to find communities. And they do this through their various social media platforms. On top of that, Meta is investing hundreds of millions of dollars into creating what they call a metaverse, where people can enter a virtual world and interact with each other in that virtual world. But even at its best, whatever they can achieve with that, even at its best, that metaverse will just be a cheap imitation of what God has created for you and I in heaven, where we get to be with Jesus and enjoy relational togetherness with him and with one another for all of eternity. The ultimate metaverse is heaven, where we will experience perfect togetherness with Jesus and his Father and the Spirit and with one another for all of eternity. Now, why does Jesus want his disciples and why does he want us to be with him where he is in heaven? Look at what he says in the verse. He says, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. And that glory is the eternal loving togetherness between the father and the son. Once the son is restored to that place of loving togetherness at the father's right hand in heaven. Yes, Jesus revealed much of his glory when he was on the earth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle John testifies and says that we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of what? Grace and truth. But what Jesus' disciples have not seen is Jesus in his heavenly glory, in the bosom of his father, with him seated at his father's right hand. They have not seen the love relationship of Jesus with his father in its full heavenly bloom. But this is what Jesus is asking for them and for us to get to see. He wants us to be with him in heaven so we can see this, the glory of this relationship. Speaking about this glory that he wants us to see, Jesus says to his father at the end of verse 24, for you loved me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And the particular ways that 
the father showed this love to his son in heaven amount to what Jesus back in verse five of this chapter was asking the father to restore him to. And now Jesus is asking the father to see to it that after that comes about, that his disciples can be with him in heaven so that they can see him in the full bloom of this loving relationship with his father. And it is now that we realize that Jesus was asking for this restoration to his former glory back in verse 5, not merely for his own sake, but for the sake of his disciples and us. He wanted this former glory with the Father restored so that we could behold this glory with our eyes and take in the life-giving vision of the Father and the Son in the fullness of their heavenly relationship. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John tells us that when we see Jesus at his appearing, what's going to happen? He says, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. And it's here now in John 17 where we learn what it is about Jesus that we're going to get to see. And that is the glory of his love relationship with his father. And the sight of that glory will transform us into the fullness of what God wants us to be as children of God. In that day, you and I will be as beautifully relational as Jesus is. Walking in the freedom forever of self-giving love with no selfish ambition, no rivalries, no anger, no more bitterness, no secrecies, no isolation. In that day, we will become the fullest and the freest and most perfected version of ourselves when we are orbiting the love relationship of the Father and the Son and beholding them in the fullness of their relational glory in heaven. This is an amazing thing to look forward to, is it not? Thankfully, we don't have to wait until heaven to at least begin to experience this. According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, we can even right now here be beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and be undergoing a transformation into the image of what we are beholding. And even from what Jesus says here in John 17 in our passage today, we learn that he wants us to even now be enjoying the beginnings of all of this on earth in the here and now. And this brings us to the third desire of Jesus for all who believe in him Number three, that the love of the Father for him will be in us as he himself is in us. That the love of the Father for him will be in us as he himself is. Observe what Jesus says in verse 25. Oh, righteous Father. Jesus is proclaiming what a perfect Father he is, O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these 
have known that you sent me. Though the world does not know the Father, Jesus says, yet I have known you. And let's remember that the Greek word here translated known is the word that speaks of an experiential, relational, personal knowledge. Jesus knows the Father because he enjoyed relational togetherness with his Father from all of eternity past before the creation of the world. So there is no one more personally experienced with the Father than Jesus, who is the second member of the Trinity. As for Jesus' disciples, he says here in verse 25, and these have known that you sent me. And they came to that knowledge based on the words that they have heard Jesus speak and the miracles that they have seen Jesus perform. They beheld how full of grace and truth Jesus was, and they beheld his life of beautiful togetherness with his father, and they came to the conclusion that he was truly the only begotten of the father sent by the father into the world. This is why Jesus speaks to his father in verse 26 and says, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known. Jesus has done an excellent job, a perfect job of revealing the goodness and the beauties of the father's character. He has revealed the father's glory to them such that these men now know the father. And there's still so much more of the father's name and character and heart to reveal, which is why Jesus says in verse 26, and I will make it known. And boy, will he ever do that by going to the cross and by letting the father raise him from the dead and then by sending his disciples the spirit who will guide them into all truth about the father and about himself. Through all of these means, Jesus powerfully makes known the fullness of the father's name or the Father's glory and character. And why is Jesus' mission to make the Father's name known like this? At the end of verse 26, he says to his Father, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus desires that the love that the Father has loved him with would actually be in his disciples In other words, that they would have beating in their very own breast the love of Jesus for his father and the love of the father for Jesus. Think about that for a moment. When a person comes to a place in their life where they truly love Jesus, they love Jesus because the love of the father for Jesus has rubbed off on them. They have caught the contagion of the father's love for Jesus such that they are now just as smitten with the loveliness of Jesus as the father himself is. But here in these final words of chapter 17, Jesus is also wanting his disciples and for us to realize that just as the father has loved him, 
so he has loved them. So that being loved by Jesus in this way, they would love the Father and they would love one another with a love that originated from the very heart of God. This is actually the way it has to be. As Charles Spurgeon says, only love can beget love. The only way a person can truly love as they ought is for them to first experience being loved with a perfect love like that of God the Father and God the Son as the love of the Father and the Son is poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. It is then and only then that you and I can truly begin to love with a love that was begotten of God. Jesus wants the love that the Father has loved him with to be in us. And Jesus wants to be in us as well. And he is in us through the Spirit whom he has given to us. And him being in us ensures that we will forever be loved by the Father who loves him so. I have really wrestled with how to conclude the message this morning. I could conclude this sermon this morning by giving you a bunch of exhortations. But I've actually decided not to do that this morning, although that would be healthy and wholesome to do. But I think the glory of what we have been privileged to behold in these verses is sufficient for those who have the spirit of God to be transformed. Instead, in our closing moments together, I want us to savor the fact that Christianity is radically unique among the religions of the world and presenting to us a God of love like what we see revealed in this prayer of Jesus. A God who is three persons in eternal community. A God who shows us his love through the sacrificial giving of his son so that through the death of his son upon a cross, we might have our sins forgiven and be ushered into the triune love that we've been talking about and is put on display in Jesus' prayer in John 17. This is not just a God who loves. This is a God who is love. God is love. And you can't say that about any other deity. As Christopher Watkins says, to call Zeus love, to call Zeus Jupiter, Brahma, or Allah, love, would be wholly impossible. As for Plato, the philosopher, he would have met the statement, God is love, with a bewildered shake of the head. Because for Plato, a God does not have any dealings with men. Unquote. Yet we learn here in Jesus' prayer, that at the bedrock of all reality 
is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son that is characterized by love. Jesus' words here in John 17 remind us that this love is more fundamental than the physical universe itself. For the Father loved his Son before the foundation of the world. And I'm not sure any of us realize how astonishing that really is. I remember reading years ago that if you were hypothetically to take, like to travel to the nearest neutron star in our universe, and there's perhaps a billion of such in our own Milky Way galaxy, that if you were to travel to a neutron star and take simply one teaspoon of matter from that neutron star and somehow succeed in bringing that teaspoon of matter from that neutron star back to Earth, you would discover that that teaspoon of matter weighs anywhere from one to six billion tons. And yet, more fundamental than a neutron star, more fundamental than the entire physical universe itself, is the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and the love that they have for one another, which they welcome us into. The love of the Father and the Son for each other as I said a moment ago, existed before the earth was created and it will still be going strong long after the present heavens and earth have passed away. And it's actually an astonishing thing that this love can be successfully brought from heaven to earth and into our lives. Again, thinking about that teaspoon of matter from a neutron star if you were to try to bring that teaspoon of matter back to planet Earth, you would not succeed in that mission. For once, that teaspoon of matter escaped the intense gravity of the neutron star, it would explode and release as much energy as our entire sun produces in the span of three seconds. So when you realize that the love of God is more fundamental than that teaspoon of matter from a neutron star and more fundamental than the entire physical universe itself, you appreciate how astonishing it is that God has allowed that love to travel from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and that he would allow us to witness the love of the Father and the Son for one another and in a most amazing act of hospitality that God would actually welcome us inside of that love relationship. Are you serious? 
This is amazing. And being caught up in this love of the triune God, we can find contentment, stability, encouragement, and security, and strength, knowing that we are safe in the love of the Almighty. And we can begin to have the wherewithal to actually love other people and love one another, to love our spouses and our children and to show love to all those whose paths we cross. The love of God is heaven's greatest commodity and God has allowed it to come to us and to change our lives forever if we would but believe in his son and receive this love. I remember hearing the testimony of a former Taliban member who lives in Pakistan, whom Pastor Mike had the privilege of meeting, I think it was last year when he was in Pakistan. This man once had a heart that was full of hate and vengeance, but he came across a Bible and he was reading the Gospel of John, and he came upon John 3.16, and he read the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And as he pondered those verses, he was stunned by them. And he thought to himself, If God loves the world, and I am a part of the world, then that must mean that God actually loves me. And the more that thought gripped him, the more he was undone by it. His hardened heart became melted down and began to be brought to life by the love of God that he was being invited into. And he came to believe in the Savior who revealed this love of God to him. And God ended up filling this man's heart with a love for God and for others that this man never thought he would ever be capable of. And I want you to know that Jesus says the same thing to you this morning. If you are presently outside of this love relationship with him, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you have never received this love, I urge you to embrace it today. More importantly, I urge you to allow this love to embrace you and to wrap you up inside the embrace of God the Father and God the Son for one another and for you. If you were to do that today, some Christian in your life may hear the news of you doing that and say, I'm so glad you got converted. I've been praying for you for years. And Jesus would say, well, I was actually praying for you 2,000 years ago. And you can read the text of my prayer for you in John 17, which we have been so blessed to study in recent days. Let's pray together.
Lord, in looking at these verses and in studying through the entirety of your prayer in John 17, it feels as if we are at the molten hot core of divine revelation. And there are depths that are here that are way beyond what I could plunge or give expression to. But I do feel um, grateful for what you do unveil for us all in these verses as you unveil your heart, Lord Jesus, and you allow us a glimpse of the glories of your relationship with your Father. If we could just but see the glory of this, Lord, we would be forever transformed by it. But to the degree that it is revealed, it gives such strength and security Help us as your people to just orbit this this triune community of love and derive life and strength from this love and to stand daily amazed that we are welcomed into this community, triune community of infinite love. And help us not only to see ourselves as believers inside the embrace of Father and Son for one another, but may we see each other in this way also. Even that brother or sister that we are frustrated with or bitter against, at odds with. May we live in a way that is befitting to the divine embrace that is now our mutual address. And may our love for you and for one another and for the world be deeply marked by this love that you have ushered us into. I pray that if there are any who are here this morning that have never entered into this love, Lord, that they would allow you to sweetly draw them to yourself. That they would look at their sins and compare their sins to to this, the beauty of this, and just be so ready to be done with their brokenness and their sin and the isolation and the secrecy and the selfishness and to enter into this divine community of love which gives them the forgiveness of all of their sins, clothes them with the very righteousness of Jesus. May they not delay. 
may they be so ravished in their hearts with the beauty of what they have beheld even this morning that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more minute apart from this love. Help us to walk in this, to make this love known to the world and display by our unity with one another the glories of this love that the world may know, Father, that you sent Jesus and that you love us just as you love your son. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.